It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's guest is Professor David Clayton. Professor Clayton is an artist, a writer, and teacher who grew up in England and is a graduate of Oxford University. Uh, he is the provost of Pontifex University and a visiting fellow at the Thomas More College of Liberal Arts in New Hampshire. Uh, he has published uh, four books, including The Little Oratory, A Beginner's Guide to Praying in the Home, The Way of Beauty, Liturgy, Education, and Inspiration for Family, School, and College, um, The Vision for You, How to Discover the Life You Were Made For, and Painting the New, A Theology of the Body and a Representation of Man in Christian Art. Uh, and uh, a year ago, I taught a course on Catholic philosophy of education and we used uh, Professor Clayton's book, The Way of Beauty, in that course, and I think it's safe to say that that book was uh, the favorite of, of all the books we read by the students in that class. Um, so first of all, uh, Professor Clayton, uh, welcome, and thank you for joining me today. Um, it's great to be here, Stuart. Thank you for asking. Um, so I want to talk today about beauty, um, which, uh, again, is, is uh, the title of your book, The Way of Beauty. But also, this is uh, the first of a three-part series on the transcendentals of uh, beauty, goodness, and truth. Um, uh, so first of all, why don't we talk about uh, what is a transcendental and what makes beauty a transcendental? Um, it is a, a property of being, which means that all things that exist have these properties. So um People typically talk of the one, the good, the true, and the beautiful, although people do disagree, actually, over exactly which properties they are. Um, with regard to beauty, um, and a, a way that it's defined is the radiance of being. I think that's the one that I prefer. Um, and uh, it really uh, indicates that it's uh, a property of being which uh, allows us, therefore, to perceive it, to apprehend uh, those other qualities of goodness and truth and unity, um, usually through the senses, but it's not, it's not always the case. 
Um, can we go a bit, uh, a little more deeply about the the connection between uh, beauty, truth, and goodness? So we talked about how the three of them uh, are transcendentals, but it's not simply you know three parallel categories of transcendentals. But from a Catholic perspective, the three of those are, I guess we could say, integrated in a way. So what is the sort of connection or integration of beauty with truth and goodness? Uh, well, uh, the yeah, so uh, the, the good is the desirability of being. So everything that exists is good in itself and is desirable in some way. Uh, it may be uh, in in some respects less than it ought to be, uh, but nevertheless it is still good in regard to what it is. Uh, when we talk about something being bad or something being ugly, for example, uh, what we're actually referring to is a deficiency in something. Uh, it's not quite what it ought to be. Um, and so even to the degree that it is what it ought to be, uh, it is, it is good. It is beautiful. Truth is, um, is really, uh, the degree to which we perceive what that thing is. So that's, uh, the, our understanding of something can be distorted or the factual information about it can be um, not fully apprehended. Um, and so we don't possess the full truth intellectually of what it is. Um, now, how are these connected? Well, they're, uh, the uh, beauty I've heard described as the radiance of being. And so uh, the, it is the, uh, the fact that um, all things are in relation to each other, um, and that uh, those other aspects of being are perceptible by me. And when I grasp those things, I take delight in them, and I love what I see. Uh, and the oneness and the uh, the goodness and the truth of something. Often today in our culture, beauty is described as in you know that old saying, "Beauty is in the eye of the beholder." Uh, in other words, beauty is subjective. Um, but I think traditionally in Western culture, certainly in Catholic culture, is always uh, there's a sort of objective quality to the, the nature of beauty. So what does it mean to say that beauty is objective rather than subjective? And um, uh, well, why don't we just start with that question? Yes, um, I, I will. Um, what I want to say is that um, sometimes the discussions of what beauty is are not uh always the most helpful it's i think most people know what it is when they see it mm. really it's you know it's something we we delight in what we see and we we call it beautiful that's another way of describing beauty so you don't need to know precisely what it is in order to appreciate it philosophers like to discuss it but most sure. people love to go out into nature because it's beautiful and they don't they don't need to know anything about what we've discussed in order to be able to do that um, and that's true about beautiful paintings and beautiful architecture. Now, the objectivity of it is that uh, there is a saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which means that there is a subjective element to it. People have different ideas about what is beautiful, particularly in the culture, I would say. Uh, you, you might look at a painting and think it's beautiful, and I might think it's ugly or not appreciate it as much as you. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, I think that that is there. We have different abilities to apprehend the beauty of the object. Um, but the traditional view is that we're perceiving something that, that is part of the object we see. It's not simply a mental 
constructs. It is a property of being. It's a property of the object we behold. Um, just like it's, you know, it's mass or it's color or something like that. Uh, it is, it is beautiful. Um, this does seem alien to people today. Although what I would say is that if you, uh, ask people whether the natural world is beautiful, uh, there's barely anybody who would dissent from that, that idea. Right. Um, and they would say, and however, once they get into a philosophy class in a modern university, they probably talk themselves out of this proposition. <laughs> but, you know, prior to that, common sense, which is probably the best indication, people would just say, yes, it's beautiful. And, it, and it's about, it's the tree that's beautiful. It's not just my perception of it. It, right. it belongs to the tree. Uh, in your book, The the Way of Beauty, you mentioned that beauty um, directs us to God. Um, how, how so? What is the sort of connection or path from beauty upwards towards God? Yeah, so uh, my thought there is that, uh, that it draws us to itself. We delight in what we see. Um, and at the same time, it creates in us and... and um, Pope Benedict, as Cardinal Ratzinger talks about this, he talks about being wounded by beauty. We become aware that there is something greater. If you look at a sunset, we're in awe of it and we're drawn to it and we want to see it. But at the same time, it creates in us this sense that there's something even greater from which that beauty came. Um, it's, it's instills in us, say, for example, the sunset, a natural instinct for um, a desire for the creator who made the sunset. Um, and beauty generally has that property, it draws in it to itself, and then it directs us to something beyond itself. Um, and I always think of it rather like the savoring the smell of a beautiful meal. We're, we're drawn to it, but it doesn't actually satisfy. We want right. to somehow possess it, to have it, in the case of the meal, to eat it. Well, what it does in terms of uh, beautiful objects, whether man-made um, or uh, created by God in creation, they draw us to the source of all beauty. So by that, I mean that uh, creation speaks of the creator and, and we desire it because we're made to want God. And if it's a beautiful painting, for example, it speaks of the one who inspired the artist, who is God as well. And we instinctively feel that, I think. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, a delight, but an inbuilt dissatisfaction about perceptible beauty, the things around us. Um, why does beauty matter? Um, I remember when I, after I graduated college, I joined the Peace Corps and I, I, I lived in West Africa for a couple of years. And I remember fairly often that um, and I was living in uh, Mauritania, which is one of the, the poorest countries on earth. And a lot of my fellow Peace Corps volunteers, when they saw any signs of beauty, for example, like architectural beauty in mosques or something like that, they always scornfully said that 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 money that was used to build this this architectural building um, uh, was sort of a waste and that, that the money should have been used uh, for the poor, because, again, this was an extremely poor country. So um, why? Yes, we should have bread. But why do we need roses as well? Why do we need beauty? Well, because beauty has that property of drawing us to God, man needs God. So it has a utility. It's a reduced idea of um, utility that says beauty has no place. It, it doesn't recognize the, the spiritual needs of man, I would say. Um, 
And but the other thing is that uh, it moves us in love uh, to what we see. It stimulates our capacity to love and directly to our need for recognition of our need for God. Um, and it is through love of God and love of neighbor that you will solve the problem of poverty, for example, in Mauritania. Right. Um, and this is the argument for having uh, gold chalices and stu- you know, studded di- you know, jewel-encrusted implements, for example, beauty in the church. You hear that argument, which you know, ever since Judas, you know, we've heard this argument that you could spend that money on the poor. Right. Um, but uh, actually, first of all, the, the points I would make is that this this is this beauty is for the poor. It's not just the rich. The poor can delight in this in ways in which maybe in the things that they can buy themselves, they couldn't. So this is available to all people, mm. including the poor. Uh, but also it inspires people, um, and especially in the context of the liturgy, to love of neighbor. Um, and also um, there's very much a sort of zero-sum uh, attitude. It's one of the problems with so much in modern uh, politics, is this conflict between those who have a sense of, um, should we say, superabundance and those who have a sense of a limit, you know, a limited, uh, pie, which, you know, if I spend money on this, then I'm denying others that. Mm-hmm. But of course, money is, um, wealth is created, um, through the exchange of goods and services. And, and an aspect of that is, the desire to work with others, the desire to serve others. It's not purely self-interest. It works both ways. And so the more that we're inclined to do that and to cooperate with others um, and to do so lovingly and caringly with a desire to, to help the other as well as ourselves, it works both ways, the more wealth will be created. So it not only motivates us to uh, distribute to the poor if, if it motivates us well. Um, for those who are meant to be entrepreneurs or to create wealth, which some of us are, it will stimulate them to create more. And, and again, that that is more likely to alleviate the poverty problem, if we, if we can call it that, than a, a sort of zero-sum attitude which says spending it on this denies what could have been spent on the poor. Um, in his evangelical work, Bishop Robert Barron uh, has said that um, to spread the gospel in our sort of postmodern culture today, that we should begin with beauty rather than truth claims or, or goodness, claims about goodness or what, what is a flourishing life. Because postmodern culture, uh, with its emphasis on the subjective, would find those truth claims to be non-starters because they would find any truth claims about the true and the good to be to be oppressive. Um, do you agree with Bishop Barron that that we should start with beauty first? And if so, what is it about the beautiful that is more inviting to the postmodern mind than truth and goodness? Uh, well, beauty um, sidesteps the intellect. So that if we're drawn to it, it it happens despite ourselves. Even if we we know we don't want to believe in God, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, or we think we don't, or we don't like the church. If, if there's something beautiful about what we see, then it at least creates a curiosity and an interest whereby we can start to then engage the person in other ways. Um, what I would say is that I think um, 
the the most beautiful thing that draws people to the church is the beautiful life of the Christian. Um, and actually, uh, the, so it really comes down to the beauty that those Christians uh, come across. It's as important. So it's not just about what we um, give to the world as as the church to the to the non-believers, which we do through. Uh, or certainly we ought to, we be able to. Uh, I, I wonder whether we are at the moment so often, but, um, but it's as much about Christians, um, having a beautiful environment to work, to worship in, having beauty in their homes, because it inspires us to that love and ultimately to a, an encounter with God, which will give us happier and more loving lives. And it's that which will draw people to us. People, will come to the church because they believe they'll be happier and more joyful uh, by doing so and they'll believe it because they see that in 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 the believers um in other words it's it's the language of faith and joy um and beauty i would say is more important in nourishing those or should we say at least as important in the role it serves in nourishing the spiritual lives of those christians and and inspiring them to uh, right worship and uh, a joyful life. Yeah, I think that's really well said, and and we could see that historically in someone like Pacomius in the fourth century who becomes Christian. But I, I can even speak about that in my own life. Um, I'm a convert to Catholicism, and I certainly would not have put it in the sort of theological language or the way that you just put it now. But when I was an undergraduate at DePaul University. Uh, initially, I saw several uh, Catholic priests in particular and other Catholics sort of living beautiful lives. And then later on, when I was in graduate school in my sort of mid to late 20s, uh, seeing beautiful Catholic um, uh, husbands and wives living out beautiful families. And then, of course, they had their children. Uh, and and I, I, like I say, I wouldn't have been able to put it in that language. But looking back on it now, I think that is for me and, and probably Pacomius what what attracted me initially to Catholicism. It wasn't you know the cathedrals or the music or the paintings or the architecture. Mm. It, it was it was beautiful lives. Um, you'd mentioned earlier sort of the today. Of course, we can as always we can see the beauty in nature. Uh, but when we when we think or talk about um, beauty in in man made art today, I mean certainly we can look back to the past, to Caravaggio or Michelangelo or, uh, you know, Bernini or something like that. Um, but today in this culture we live in, it's often said that there isn't much beauty in the world today. Um, wh- where do you find uh, sort of man-made beauty today? Um, well, I th- first of all, I think there's more, th- th- there's more than people think there is. So, uh, it's not so desperate. Having said that, it could be a lot better. And there are yeah. certain things that I believe, you know, are just dreadful, like sort of a lot of modern architecture is, is awful. Right. Um, but, uh, where would I look for beauty? I mean, as a general pattern, uh, you look for things created before the Second World War. Right. Um, and when they still, even though they didn't, they weren't really aware of where they came from, where it came from. Um, they were still being taught ideas of traditional harmony and proportion, for example. Um, and uh, what happened is that they rejected all these traditional ideas. And Christ, for some reason, Christians just weren't able to defend the idea of keeping them. Mm-hmm. And so it, everything was discarded. 
And then you get the rise of modern architecture, which um, most people find very ugly and dispiriting. Um, and uh, you, you're starting to get movements now of people who are looking to reject that, but not yet able to do so um, in a way that people did in the past. They, they have a sense that they need to look to nature um, and they might use natural materials. They might try and imitate in some way what they see in nature. But um, I really think they could do with just going back to uh, classical times and early Christianity and seeing how the philosophers of those times looked at the natural world and summarized it mathematically mm. um, and then allowed that to inform the design principles. Uh, now, you're beginning to see people doing that. I think there are signs of hope, um, and especially in the U.S. in church design. I mean, some of the – still in Europe, you're getting these horrible concrete boxes and things uh, for church design. But typically in the U.S., uh, in re very recent times, um, you're starting to get uh, churches designed by people who are interested in recapturing the traditional forms. Um, so there's the, the architecture school at Notre Dame, for example, uh, is well known for trying to do this and forming uh, Catholic architects. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope, because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. Uh, we talked earlier about um, the connection between um, beauty and God and, and how beauty can bring us to God and, and maybe a sort of middle step in there uh, which you also talk about in your book is is liturgy, and and of course liturgy uh, we all know brings us uh, to God um, or closer to God. Uh, so today, of course, again, sort of echoing what I just said a moment ago about the lack of beauty uh, we see around us, um, it's often said that that the liturgy uh, lacks beauty. Yes. Uh, how how can beauty uh, help elevate our liturgical lives? And and if you could wave a magic wand to infuse beauty back into the liturgy what what would you do mm. gosh I, yeah it would have to be a magic wand <laughs> how would I, so i think 
just about everything needs to change so that the, the actual practice of the liturgy needs to, to be changed so that we're dignified. If I could change one thing, it would be ad orientem. Um, I'm not so worried about having all Latin, uh, although the, the sort of dignity and beauty you need is ten, is um, observed, I would say, in Latin masses by, by those congregations far more. Um, but the music, uh, I would say needs to participate in traditional forms, which, which were developed in order to communicate the truths of the words of the liturgy. Um, the architecture needs to, to be a house that is truly built to house the, uh, right worship. Um, and the art as well needs to be the sort of art that directs us that, uh, to God. Uh, the role of the art in the liturgy is to reveal the invisible aspects. To, in other words, to reveal the mysteries of what, it, what is what is going on there. Um, and so, it's not so much a, an alternative presentation of the scripture, um, as is often said, but more in, ter- in the terms of liturgical art, um, a, a presentation in such a way that it reveals to us what scripture tells us about the liturgy. <laughs> Um, which is a different thing. Um, and uh, so it's not just the content, but also the style. And again, traditions have been developed so that there is a, um, a harmony of style and content, which is all um, speaking uh, either directly or indirectly, indirectly in, case, in the case of uh, the style uh, of the truths that are being transmitted. Um, so for, just to give you an example of how that doesn't work, modern, uh, pop music, whatever, however, you know, what's the trendy word to describe it? You know, if you're actually listening to it, I don't know what that would be today, but mm-hmm. you think of pop music, it was not developed with a religious purpose. I'm not, I'm not wholly against pop music. You know, I still secretly listen to all these rock bands in my car when I think nobody else is listening you know, <laughs> and sing along to it and all that sort of stuff. Sure. And, and I'm, I'm, you know, and at a wedding reception, I'll get up and dance along to the music with, you know, with the best of them and hope that nobody notices. But that, that is, um, the fact that it's popular, um, and may be good for, in certain contexts, some of it is just, um, has an, has evil intent. We know that. And so clearly we want to discard that, but it's not just the words. It's the musical structures. It's the rhythms and patterns that are used. Are, are developed to communicate certain things. And you can't just, and when, when everything is in harmony and it's, it's directed towards its proper end, it will be good and it will be beautiful in its context. So it's possible to have a beautiful, I don't know, disco tune that's good for people just getting up and expressing the joy of living on the dance floor. But that is very different from, from what you want in the context of liturgy. And, and using a disco tune as a hymn will create a conflict. Uh, sure. it, it's, um, it, even if the words are right, the style is not. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't totally de- um, render it useless, but um, it, it creates a, an inner conflict. Um, and at least uh, the awareness that um, it's not just what you say, but how you say it is important, would allow us to move in the right direction, I think. 
your book also talks about beauty and education or, or maybe formation might be a better word. And of course, mm. in the past year or so, uh, because of COVID, many kids have spent their entire schooling uh, simply staring at a computer screen and probably haven't been exposed to much beauty. Uh, even if they were in the classroom, they, they probably wouldn't be exposed to too much beauty. So um, what have they missed and, and what is the importance of beauty in education or formation? Well, I, I would, first of all, I would say that um, it's possible to have beauty in the home. And uh, if you have a domestic church, which is a focus for prayer, which is actually what I wrote about with Lila Lawler in the, in the book, The Little Oratory, then uh, people needn't be denied that at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but the, the, what I was thinking of there was that um, I began writing that book actually as an artist, trying to work out how people in the past had been trained to produce beautiful art. I knew there was something wrong, as I saw it, with modern art. Um, and I wanted to know um, what made the art of the past beautiful. I, I, and I couldn't really get anybody to tell me. So um, as part of that, I began to look into the training that artists had had. So aside from getting the skills, which is a, a big enough task in itself and which aren't usually taught in modern art schools, uh, there is a formation which cultivates what you might call the creative conscience or the, the, uh, the, the, our ability to apprehend beauty, which also allows us to judge the grace and beauty of the actions that we take and also respond to inspiration. Um, and, or should we say, at least facilitate, uh, that, uh, that inclination in the person. Um, so th- there's a, a, um, a spiritual life which seems to uh, work towards this, which is actually very traditional spirituality focused on the liturgy of the church. Uh, there is this, there is an occult an enculturation, which means that we need to be aware of the of Christian culture, even if we're creating something new. It needs to be coming out of this the traditions, uh, so that it speaks of the same values and ideas. Um, and so what happened was that I, I, I felt that I'd captured this. And so I started to write it down. And it's occurred to me that if this is true, that the ability to follow inspiration, to create things beautifully and gracefully, um, is something that most people would want. Um, not just artists who, who doesn't want to be able to make the beautiful choice as, as a sign, if you like, of the good, the good choice and the true choice. So, um, as we're uh, choosing the path in front of us, uh, we're faced with a an array of what you might call morally neutral choices. It doesn't mean that everything that's ahead of us is equally good for me. There might be I need to I want to pick the best, and usually, it's it's that ability to judge the beauty which defines the way of beauty, that path to God. So I was thinking if that if I, if I have really captured that, then this should be part of every general Catholic education. And so I wanted to make the argument that it should be included. And I started to read the church's documents on education. And what I found, well, what I thought I was seeing was actually, this is what Catholic education always was. Right. Uh, And um, I wondered whether 
even people who are, I'm talking about genuinely Catholic educators, uh, were really aware to the degree that this was the case. And so that's why I made it a book about education as well as artistic formation in Catholic culture. Uh, for those of us who've been denied a cultivation in beauty throughout our formative years, and, and I'm speaking as someone who uh, is a, is a, you know, was a child of the American public school system in the 80s and 90s, although yeah. I, I have a feeling that the Catholic school system wasn't that much better. Um, so we weren't really formed in it. Um, how do we belatedly go about receiving an education in beauty today? I mean, obviously, we could just walk into an art museum, and I, that's a good thing, but... Oftentimes, I think a lot of people would find just doing that uninspiring or, or, or unintelligible because they weren't, haven't already been formed in that. So yes. how do we belatedly receive a formation in beauty as adults? Uh, well, first up, of course, I'd say buy my book, The Way of Beauty. <laughs> well, I, agree that, I agree with that, too. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but I would say that um, the don't treat this as an intellectual exercise. Um, I would say it starts with worship. And for the most part, uh, unless you're a priest who's listening to this, you really don't have much way of influencing what is going on in the church. And um, unless somebody's asking me about it, I, I got fed up of sort of wagging my finger at priests and, uh, you know, tut-tutting when things weren't to my liking. Um, so I thought, well, what can I do? What's the legitimate form of worship that I can participate in as a lay person and have some control over. And and that's where I got the devotion to the Liturgy of the Hours. So in the, at home, I have an icon corner, um, and I choose art that I feel nourishes my prayer, and I tend to look for traditional imagery. Um, and in the, the books that I've described, I, I describe how you set up the, the icon corner, the traditional layout of that. Um, and then I pray the Psalms and uh, I try and sing the Psalms. So I taught myself to sing in both very simple forms, both Gregorian modes and Byzantine modes, actually. Um, and so I sing on my own when I, when I pray. I, I, um, and uh, so it begins there. Sing the Psalms or the Liturgy of the Hours um, and engage with beautiful art as you do it. That is the, we're most open to that encounter with beauty when we're open to an encounter with God. And so it will happen in the liturgy itself. And the, and the liturgy that we can control legitimately is the divine office, the Liturgy of the Hours. And you can just do that at home. So that for me is the most important thing. Then beyond that, um, I would just think about uh, what actually the environment that you're in. Try to make it beautiful. Try to consider that it, it does actually matter whether something is beautiful. It's, it has a utility. Uh, I don't like people to get to use the language that says that we're too utilitarian today, that we, uh, we don't... Uh, we, we only think of utility and therefore we don't take into account beauty. I think that's conceding ground to the opposition. It's acknowledging that there is no utility to beauty. I would say that uh, when you think of uh, the use of something, if you don't take into account, that, into account that it ought to be beautiful as well, you're actually, you have a reduced sense of what that use is, that you're not acknowledging the spiritual dimension of man. 
And the greatest utility is the one that recognizes the, the use of the building, even if it's something quite mundane, but in the context of our ultimate end. And when that is done, even a cow shed can be beautiful. It's, it's, it'll be properly ordered to what it is. Mm. Um, and it is worth thinking about. So, um, beyond that, I would, st- I would say to you, start thinking about what is the graceful way, what is the beautiful way of doing things. Beyond that, the answer is expose yourself to as much beauty as possible. Go, mm-hmm. um, look, go to the culture, uh, study it, look at it, um, and uh, engage with those things that you're drawn to, and gradually your taste will be formed. You'll, you'll discern if you're looking for the right things, the doors will open for you, I would say. Uh, one of the things you were just talking about is the idea of space and, and beauty in space and its functionality. And in your book, you have this really great reflection on your time at Oxford University and how Oxford organized its space in a beautiful way. Um, and, and so you talked a little bit about functionality and, and beauty. Yes. But can, if we talk a little bit more about that, why, why does it matter that the spaces around us, yes, be uh, or functional, yes, be organized, but also beautiful? And what does that do for us? Okay, so it's always easier rather than just talking in general terms to do what uh, you've done, which is focus on some particular aspect of the human uh, activity and say, well, what, how do we mean in that context? So with regard to education, um, the, the, you have to first of all say, well, what is the purpose of education? Right. Is it to teach facts? How is the, the process, how is education ordered to our ultimate end? And the answer is it's, it's it's part of our formation that enables us, us in this life to fulfill God's will. And uh, I think it's Pius XI says that the, the goal of uh, Catholic education is to, is to form, I, I think he uses the phrase, the supernatural man. In other words, what he's saying is that it's um, it's a formation that adds to everything else that we uh, pick up by our participation in the faith um, that uh, directs us towards partaking of the divine nature and supernatural transformation in Christ. And therefore, the goal is divine wisdom, uh, something beyond us, something that is imparted to us. Now, you can't guarantee that, but you can uh, give somebody a formation that inclines us to be open to it. And it doesn't, it's not simply a theological training because man, um, needs to earn a living as part of living the life in this world as created by God. So, so all these things can be ordered to that end. It's, it's not everything falls under that umbrella. But once you acknowledge that ultimate end, then the environment, um, the, the environment will be ordered to that too. So. Um, the, uh, Christian, co- the, the, the college at Oxford, uh, was designed on Christian lines, uh, really on a model that was developed, uh, before the Reformation. At the heart of the college is the heart of what every community ought to be, which is the chapel. Um, and then you have next to that the dining room, which is, um, communal eating. Uh, which is an echo, if you like, of the, the Eucharist. And then you have the library and then communal rooms and then individual rooms in different quadrangles. The very proportions of the buildings that are used, the dimensions 
um, use the mathematics that are uh, derived from the observation of the cosmos, going right the way to Boethius and beyond in the early church. Um, and the goal here is to influence every person, but also to bind people together as a community of learners, uh, that if, if we're, our souls are being drawn to God, um, we're growing in love. And so our love for each other will, uh, grow as well. And it, one of the things that I found very interesting was reading through Newman's account of being at Oxford and, and really just saying how terrible it was. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he said the, the lectures were terrible. It, its purpose in the 18th century when he was actually there. I think it was the late 18th century. He said it was, um, it was basically designed to create people to subdue Catholicism and run an empire. That was the purpose, purpose of Oxford. And it was perfectly suited to that purpose. But he said it wasn't the lectures. It wasn't the teachers. It wasn't the, the study that he did. That education, uh, came primarily from the community of fellow students, um, that, that's, the conversations, the way that um, people talked about the work that they were being set, uh, just um, over dinner, over a beer, for example, or whatever it is. And that certainly was my experience when I was at, at the um, St. Edmund Hall in Oxford. But my greatest recollections of just the conversations with the other students. And they, they weren't high-powered intellectual in Britain. Our conceit is that we all think we're funny and um, witty. Uh, and so everybody's trying to be funny. And if you, if you, if you're serious, uh, it's okay to be good at something, but you mustn't be seen to be trying to be good. Mm. Everybody wants to be witty and funny and draw in all these sort of clever references to things, but it must appear to be easy and just sort of roll off the tongue. So there's a, you know, there's a, we're, we're aiming to be like that in our, you know, in our conceit, shall we say. Um, but it was very, very stimulating. You had people from all dis disciplines, uh, cracking jokes nonstop. And it was very, very funny. And, uh, I tell a few stories about how this, you know, how this worked its way through. But, mm -hmm. but, um, what I didn't realize was just how much I was learning as a result of this. And it seems that the people who ran the Ox Oxford at that time knew that because they gave us enormous amounts of uh, spare time. Mm -hmm. um, and they picked people deliberately who would pursue um, all these other interests um, and not be focused um, solely on their studies mm -hmm. uh, and encourage us to do so. That's that's uh, that's really wonderful. Um, hopefully in the future here in the U.S., uh American universities can sort of imitate or sort of get back to that idea. Um, final question. Uh, we are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. And we are actually recording this episode during the Easter season, so the season of resurrection. Uh, and when you look around us, and we've talked about uh, the problems in uh, art in general or, or liturgy in particular, and, and see the lack of beauty, uh, and you look to the future, what, what gives you hope? Um, well, I just think of what it was like when I came into the church something like 30 years ago, mm -hmm. between 25 and 30 years ago. At that time, I thought I was the only one who was interested in these things. Mm -hmm. Um, then in 1999, I read John Paul II's 
John Paul II's letter to artists. And I thought, oh, well, there's two of us. Uh, Somebody (laughs) else thinks that too. Um, And now there are many, many people. I don't know when the cultural center that you're part of was established, but I'm guessing it's within the last 30 years. It wasn't there uh, before 30 years ago. There is a, there is an increased recognition of the importance of this within the church. And I would say that, uh, that amongst the laity who are driving this, uh, that uh, it is increasing. So among those uh, who have an orthodox faith and are practicing Catholics, there is an increasing awareness of this. And people are trying in many, many different ways to do it. Some I think are great. Some, I probably wouldn't be so enthusiastic about, but but regardless, the fact that people recognize the need for this, I think is very hopeful because ultimately we're all just grappling in the dark a little bit and we're relying, you know, we've got the church, we've got God and we've got people and we've got the materials to create things with. And if we're trying to do it, we'll manage it, I believe. And you see things, uh, for example, uh, one of the things that inspired me to write The Way of Beauty as well was uh, looking at what the Eastern churches have done, Byzantine, Catholic, and Orthodox churches. Mm. I, I'd always imagined that, that they were lucky. They just escaped any of the effects of modernity. They had this iconographic tradition that had existed since the beginning, you know, right the way back to, I don't know, Catherine of Siena Monastery or something in Mount Sinai. Right, um, right. And in fact, it isn't true. Um, they had a sort of resourcement, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, probably of the sort that, uh, was hoped for in the Roman church by the reformers. It was sort of so botched up, mm-hmm. but they just did it without having a council to direct them particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of that, they reestablished the iconographic tradition. And they were so successful in that that I would say we're now two, three, four generations of teachers down. It, it, it is relatively recent, the, 50, the 40s and 50s it occurred. Um, and the, the quality of iconography that you see today in both Byzantine Catholic churches and Orthodox churches, and now some Roman Catholics are learning from them, mm-hmm. is as high as anything we've seen in the past, it, you know, it matches what the great masters in the past did. So it just shows that it's possible. Um, what they did is they got their priorities right. They had the liturgical renewal, and then they had an artistic renewal connected to that right worship. And I, you can see the signs of that happening, not just in iconography, but also in our other artistic traditions in the Roman church, which has, which is richer, actually. It's not just iconography as others too. So I am, I am hopeful. I hope I'll see things developing before I, before I die, <laughs> shall we say. But what, one of the, the other things is that, for example, um, I was invited by Pontifex University to create this Master of Sacred Arts program, um, after writing that book that, that you read. And how well I'm doing, that's for others to say. But what, what I would say, it is extremely heartening that, uh, there is that recognition of the need for this in the church. And mm-hmm. once, once you have that, I think we'll, we'll get it. I think, I think we'll rediscover it. Mm-hmm. 
Again, the name of the book is The Way of Beauty, Liturgy, Education, and Inspiration for Family, School, and College by David Clayton, published by Angelico Press. Uh, Professor Clayton, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. I really enjoyed our conversation. It's a pleasure, Stuart. Thank you. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas.